This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor Richard Middleton. Professor Middleton is a reader in American history at Queen's University in Belfast and the author of several books, perhaps the best known of, of which is The Bells of Victory, and today we are discussing his latest book, Cornwallis, Soldier and Statesman in a Revolutionary World, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Professor. Uh, yes, oh, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Um, yes, thank you for the invitation to, to speak today to answer some of your um, no doubt challenging questions. Uh, professor, why did you write this book? Well, a number couple of reasons. Um, I had been working on a sort of student text on the War of American Independence, uh, which necessarily brought me into uh, close acquaintance or relatively close acquaintance with Cornwallis. And uh, it appeared to me that uh, uh, there wasn't uh, any really, well, no recent or even distant. There was only one biography for Cornwallis. And um, of course, there had been quite a lot of uh, attention paid to him by American writers, but I didn't feel that uh, his story had been told necessarily from his point of view. So, uh, so that was really um, the two two reasons. Yeah, um, lack of uh, an up-to-date biography, and uh, and the fact that uh, yeah, it sort of sparked my interest. I also knew he had a career. It went on from America. Indeed, he very much redeemed himself by uh, uh, in India by going to India and then uh, various missions when he came back during the French Revolutionary War. So, uh, as I had a background in British history and I was working in Ireland, these were things that I knew I could weave or would give me perhaps some insight into those aspects of his uh, later career. What was uh, Lord Cornwallis's family background? He was the eldest son of the first Earl Cornwallis. Um, the uh, the family could trace their roots back to uh, to the 14th century, when a uh, Cornwallis Wally was called uh, uh, was was uh, named Sheriff of uh, London. Um, and indeed, the family may have had Irish backgrounds because the the name Cornwallis occurs in the um, uh, in, in parts of Ireland, 
uh, <clears throat> another supposition is that the uh, the Cornwallis was that uh, it was uh, from from uh, Cornwall, um, and the coat of arms included the uh, chout the. Uh, uh, the uh, what do you call it um, a particular species of um, bird that uh, uh, could be found off the Cornish coast, but I think probably the Irish connection is more convincing. Anyhow, the subsequently the uh, Cornwallis family began to rise slowly through the uh, various monarchs, and uh, the first one to be ennobled and made a lord and sit in the House of Lords was. Uh, William Cornwallis, who had served Charles II during the, uh, the Civil War, during his exile. So uh, he was a noble in 1660 and took his seat. And then there were several more Lord Cornwallis, um, slowly uh, working their way up the sort of political and social ladder. And the uh, the um, Cornwallis's father was then made uh, an earl, a step up in the peerage. Uh, and so that uh, that was uh, Cornwallis's background. The family came from uh, uh, this uh, since the 17th century had been centred in Suffolk, um, near Bury St Edmunds, the town of Bury St Edmunds. Um, so that was his uh, yes, that was his background. So he was certainly born, you could say, with the proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. Why did Lord Cornwallis decide to become a soldier? Was it not usually the case that it was the younger sons of peers, but not peers themselves, who took up soldiering? No, I think that's not necessarily uh, not necessarily true. The uh, quite often the eldest sons, in fact, uh, the eldest son tended to go into the army. The second son would go into the navy. And the um, next son would probably go into the church, and maybe a fourth one might uh, might become a, a lawyer, um, depending. Uh, but uh, so I think that's probably, as I say, it's, 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 there was flexibility. Um, but uh, going into the army was convenient um, sort of um, period, while the um, the the, the Soldier, while the, the heir waited to, um, yeah, to obtain his inheritance to his father to die. Uh, so a military career. Very often, I think, probably quite a short military career. Yes, um, cut short. But in Cornwallis's case, uh, he confessed to desire to become a soldier from an early age. Um, as I say, this may have been because of some of the uh, other. Um, uh, People, uh, young heirs of, of his age, were taking a military career. Um, he may have been inspired, by, yes, by his uncle Edward, who was a major general in the in the British Army. Uh, so I think all these things came into play. But he later confessed to his son Lord Broom that uh, his um, from an early age he had been an insatiable desire to become a soldier. And so that's what he uh, did, decided to, yeah, to do. And how much? And his, I'm sorry. So as you can say, and his father seems to have um, to have accepted that, uh, and, and uh, thereby uh, to, to advance or start him off and purchase a commission in the prestigious Grenadier or First Foot Guards Regiment as a, as, a, as an ensign. 
and that was in 1756. Sorry, we're going to say. How much um, experience did uh, Lord Cornwallis acquire in the Seven Years' War? Yes, he, uh, well, initially his father was keen for him to be, uh, to receive not the, I mean, the usual education for, a, for an officer was they would be, uh, yes, they would probably, well, their parents would buy, their father would buy them a commission. And then they would go straight to that regiment and then they would learn the ropes from their senior officers. And, um, and of course, experienced non-commissioned officers would quietly, uh, as the new uh, young ensign or lieutenant, um, learn the ropes of, of soldiering. Um, now, a few of the more ambitious ones would uh, would certainly try and read some uh, some of the literature, or perhaps even a bit of um, uh, history of uh, of wars, of soldiering, uh, particularly the classics. Um, but in this case, uh, I'm not quite sure why the, um, the records are rather scanty. But his father, anyhow, the, 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 the decision was taken that really to become a, a, a top-class soldier and a senior officer, um, Cornwallis's education needed something more than just um, uh, at, a, at a regimental level, and so he was uh, was sent off. Uh, at the beginning of 1757, this is with war already, of course, France waging, but war in Europe was uh, yet to break out. Uh, anyhow, he was sent to a, uh, a college, an academy, a military academy in Turin, um, which was very much run on the Prussian lines of, uh, of, uh, of military theory and military practice. Uh, and that reflected, of course, the... Um, the esteem with which uh, many Europeans viewed, yes, Frederick, uh, the, the Frederick the Great, king, the King of Prussia, and his military prowess. So the Prussian school was thought to be the uh, probably the best, uh, the, the most more advanced than French military um, doctrine from the era of um, Louis XIV. Uh, so he goes to uh, Turin, but the, um, his career is cut short by. Uh, after six months, his, his stay at studies, and uh, he then, in fact, um, decides to he hears at war that the British army is about to serve in Germany. This is 1750, early 1758, and uh, he decides that to uh, to go and join the British forces in 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 uh, with Prince Ferdinand, who taken command of of the um, of the Hanoverian for, and British forces trying to oppose the French and provide cover, of course, of Frederick the Great, who was now immersed in uh, a war on, on three or four fronts. Um, but uh, in terms of his career, then, Cornwallis initially was given a, a posting as an aide to Lord Granby, the commander of the British cavalry. And then he uh, then he became, got a captaincy in, in, a, in, a, in a new foot regiment. And within three years, and this reflects, I think, his uh, aristocratic background. He uh, and, and the lieutenant colonel was the uh, effectively the did all the 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 management of of, of a regiment. So the colonel very often was just the titular head. So this was very very remarkable progress. Um, yes, he the Battle of Minden in August 1759. Um, and as far as one can tell, he, uh, yeah, he, he really clearly 
um, caught the eye of, uh, of various senior officers so that uh, helping to smooth his progress to uh, his position as a lieutenant colonel. Oh, well, you just see, yes, he, uh, he, um, he did have to come back at one point, but his father died. Uh, uh, yes, his father died. Um, he did then return to the front, for, but then by then the war was beginning to wind down at the end of 1762. Uh, and um, that, uh, yeah, so that, that brought that stage of his... Uh, but he certainly had a lot of experience in various uh, actions, both as a company commander and then as a regimental commander from 1761 onwards. Uh, what was his involvement in British politics prior to 1776? Uh, prior to 1770, um, the, the Cornwallis family had been staunch, staunch um, supporters of the Whig establishment. Um, they'd supported the Glorious Revolution in, 17, in 1688 89 and uh, had to remain very firm supporters of Whig governments uh, right through <clears throat> uh, to uh, this period when Cornwallis, yeah, with the coming of peace, Cornwallis takes his position in the House of Lords. Uh, uh, certainly, of course, support for the Whigs had um, had, had, had helped the uh, family fortunes and advance, as I say, his father got the earldom, largely, I think, because of his... Uh, political commitment to the support of the ministries of um, uh, of Walpole. And uh, it added that Cornwallis and his family, or so, they were, his, through his, uh, one of his, um, his, his aunts was connected with the Duke of Newcastle, and there were also to the Townshend family, who were another um, major Whig family. So, so Whig, the support of the Whig uh, cause was very, very, um, uh, ingrained in Cornwallis was natural for him. Um, now, of course, you may know, or your here listeners may know, that in 1762-63, uh, George III decided to, well, he dispensed with the services of Newcastle, who, who with Pitt had made up the, um, the ministry that had brought such glory on Britain, and uh, opted to use the services of, um, of Lord Bute as Prime Minister. And... Uh, yeah, and the Whigs, uh, for the first time since 1689, found themselves, uh, yeah, in opposition. Opposition wasn't necessarily looked upon as um, being a very um, honourable thing to do. Um, and nevertheless, Newcastle, uh, trying to redeem the city or regather his supporters, began a series of dinners and whatnot, which... Um, yeah, opposition to the ministry was the, was the principal tonic, and and Cornwallis was one of those who was invited to attend, and uh, Cornwallis therefore yes yeah, supported the Whig opposition, and uh, of course in due course uh, Bute, uh, Lord Bute's ministry, or he himself crumbled, and uh, in the eventually by 1765, quite a short time, the uh, King George III was inviting the Whigs. Uh, now led by the Marquis of Rockingham into uh, into office, um, and because uh, the um, the Rockingham Whigs came into office with the because uh, the commitment to repeal the Stamp Act, um, and uh, but uh, political 
political um, required political considerations required that they uh, nevertheless to win Parliament over the Stamp Act had gone through the previous year with the Grenville Butte successor had passed the Stamp Act with almost no political opposition it just went through on the knot America wanted considerations at that point. Uh, they were concerned about the height of the debt, the taxes, and, of course, the consideration that uh, a common assumption that, yes, the Americans should pay a little bit of um, uh, towards the cost of the empire. Um, so, the uh, yes, so Cornwallis, uh, uh, when he came into office, naturally supported the Whigs, yes, in the repeal of the Stamp Act. But he did go further. Um, I was going to say that the Whigs, in order to get the Stamp Act passed, had to make a concession to the hardliners or those who thought the Stamp Act should not be repealed by passing the Declaratory Act, a uh, reaffirmation of Parliament's sovereignty to um, pass laws and legislation respecting America in all cases whatsoever. And Cornwallis, um, Interestingly, he and a small number of uh, four or five peers led by Lord Shelburne thought this was um, this was not a good Whig policy and should be. And they actually voted against Cornwallis voted against the Declaratory Act uh, in its early stages. Um, now, I have to say now because of this, historians have assumed that uh, Cornwallis was um, uh, 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 naturally sympathetic to the American cause and uh, remained so until he went to America to serve. I don't think that is actually true. I think he probably supported the or voted on the Declaratory Act because of, he was very friendly with Shelburne at this time. Um, I think that's probably the reason why uh, why he did that. Yeah. Um, because thereafter, Cornwallis voted with the ministry um, on their American legislation when he was in Parliament, um, and uh, he showed yeah consistently uh, support of the ministerial measures, and that included the Massachusetts Government Act and uh, and the Act for the Restraint of New England Trade when they came up in 1774, the Intolerable Acts. So. He wasn't, I think, actually sympathetic to it. Certainly not sympathetic to America. I mean, I think he'd come to the conclusion, uh, as, the, as relations worsened, that uh, really the uh, the Americans were being unreasonable and were being led by a small, duplicitous minority who were taking the uh, the majority of the population away from their natural natural loyalty. Uh, Why did Lord Cornwallis uh, decide to volunteer to serve in America? Well, I think that for that reason that he felt the American and the American position was unreasonable, um, that uh, the ministry had lent back, it had repealed the Stamp Act, had made uh, conciliatory gestures, but there had been a long series of um, incendiary uh, incidents that, uh, yeah, um, that it was time along with the vast majority, I think, of really the British establishment, and I suspect to the common people that it was time to teach America a lesson. Um, they needed to be reined in. They were breaking They were breaking up the empire for no very good reason, and it was the work of a small minority 
So yeah, when the um, when the uh, fighting started and decision was taken, when necessarily that reinforcements would have to be sent in additional generals, it was felt that um, Gage had not done his um, had not been firm enough and not been a very effective commander. And the decision was to say to send three major generals, um, Lord Howe. Um, uh, not sorry, not Lord Howe, William Howe, um, and uh, oh gosh, sorry, I'm, of course, Sir Henry Clinton, and uh, and uh, I forget for those guys. So it's sent at the moment my memory. Um, the decision, as Cornwallis was very keen, would have liked to have been among them. He about this time he was promoted to a major position of major general. And uh, he would like to have been among them. And uh, he certainly volunteered his services to go. Um, uh, they, they initially they were rejected, but then when uh, a decision was taken to send some of the reinforcements leaving the British Isles, leaving Ireland, leaving Britain, heading for America, some of those were to be sent to the south to try and um, stimulate southern loyalist lawyers to give them support. Cornwallis offered to um, take that detachment, that section of the army, American army going to America to take them to uh, Virginia and uh, Carolina, the Carolinas. Yeah. So I think it was with absolute uh, clear conscience that uh, he went to America. Unlike the Howes, you probably, of course, know that the um, the Howes, the Howe family, Sir William and uh, his brother, um, Lord Howe, Lord Richard Howe, uh, had American sympathies. And that, of course, was because their brother, who was the originally was Lord George Howe, um, had died in the Seven Years' War at Ticonderoga. And uh, the people of Massachusetts had uh, had been, uh, he, he really captured a lot of American hearts for those people who met him. And the people of Massachusetts had erected a statue to our family that, um, in honour of, uh, of uh, Lord George Lord Lord Howe. Um, so the Howe family, uh, yeah, they did have strong, I think, strong, uh, you know, sentiments. They felt the rebellion should be put down, but they were anxious for reconciliation. I don't think these um, considerations of Cornwallis didn't have those sort of American connections or sympathies. He hadn't served there during the Seven Years' War. How did uh, Lord Cornwallis find serving under Howe, uh, Sir William Howe? Did he have any disagreements with the latter's strategy? I don't think so. Unfortunately, the records, of course, the Howe correspondence was all, except his official cor- correspondence with Lord George Dumain, Secretary of State. Um, the correspondence... Um, uh, it was there was a fire in the Howe establishment many years later, and all the personal correspondence now, and and the Cornwallis Cornwallis correspondence seems to have been all the personal stuff. Pretty much all of his personal correspondence, except one or two exceptions, uh, were also destroyed. So it's a bit a little bit difficult to. Um, but Cornwallis seems to have got on well with. William Howe, yeah, um, and the evidence of this is that uh, Howe decided to take him as his second in command on the um, expedition to Philadelphia uh, in 1777. I should say, I mean, this partly may have been the other side of the coin, is that uh, Howe had a, 
pretty much an instant dislike of Sir William of Sir Henry Clinton. Um, he found Clinton to um, uh, trying to press his own ideas on how and how seemed to be. I mean, he seemed to be very much uh, uh, kept his thought, own thoughts to himself. I mean, the decision to go to Philadelphia instead, which was very controversial, given that you know, it was a very uh, to go by sea right down to the Chesapeake and then go sail back up the Chesapeake. Uh, this decision was taken seemingly by uh, Sir William Howe and his brother, now the, the Admiral Richard Lord Howe, seemed to have been taken between. I don't think there was um, very much correspondence or discussion with um, Howe's immediate military supporters like Cornwallis. Um, but Howe certainly didn't like Clinton, found him tedious, and uh, decided to uh, leave um, Clinton, who was actually senior to Cornwallis, leave him in New York for the 1777 campaign. But working the two men, like Cornwallis and, 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 and Howe, seemed to have gone on pretty well, yeah. Cornwallis was the blue-eyed boy as far as Howe was concerned. But that didn't mean to say he took him necessarily very deeply into his uh, confidence about the conduct of the campaign. Uh, why did Lord Cornwallis have an unhappy relationship with Sir Henry Clinton? I think uh, Cornwallis was basically was a fairly genial person. He liked to, uh, to get on to with people, though he wouldn't um, necessarily count out to them. He uh, had an ingrained sense of of honesty and the need to. Uh, but uh, but he, he he wanted to be uh, yeah get on with people if he could. Um, I just think he found Clinton a difficult person to to work with, but he, the, the 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 dispute between them may have uh, arisen out of a rather trivial episode in the preceding year, 1776. Clinton rather bitterly told Cornwallis that he'd been insulted, etc., and made a expression that he'd read rather come uh, serve in over uh, with a, a come just. I mean, a company as a, as a mere captain rather than have to serve with um, with uh, with Sir William Howe. And somehow um, Clinton came to the conclusion that his confidence only gave this expression of his anger to Cornwallis. Cornwallis subsequently told Howe this, uh, how he, Clinton claimed he would rather be a mere company commander than second in command to Sir William. And that was the reason why then Howe... Um, Consigned Clinton to staying in New York when, uh, while he and uh, while um, Cornwallis and, and, and Sir William went off to Philadelphia. So, and that seemed to, I don't know, undermine. But I mean, I have to say that um, Clinton was, and everyone says, was a very prickly character, quick to take offence and to see, uh, yeah, to take a slight that he'd been to notice or think he'd been slighted or undervalued. What was uh, Lord Cornwallis' strategy upon being named uh, Commander-in-Chief in South Carolina? Well, it was uh, set down for him by, um, by, by Clinton, his orders. Uh, Clinton remains, of course, his, uh, his uh, Commander-in-Chief. Um, the, the orders were to, uh, yeah, to continue the pacification. The assumption was with the, the, the surrender of um, Charleston and the mass submitting of the of the population um readiness to take their paroles and uh, the the assumption was that um uh the uh, 
the country would be quite rapidly pacified. Um, and Clinton, indeed, before he left to go back to New York, dispatched Cornwallis to Camden and various other officers to the periphery, the assumption being that now South Carolina was secure. Yeah. Um, um, but, of course, after a few weeks, middle of July, it became clear that uh, after Clinton had gone, Cornwallis was now in command. It became clear to Cornwallis that um, uh, the, the activities of um, Sumter and uh, Francis Marion were uh, <clears throat> stirring up the country. And uh, they were also being encouraged by the arrival of um, continental forces uh, in uh, neighboring North Carolina. Um, so clearly uh, a different, it wasn't just a matter of um, uh, taking oaths of loyalty. It was clear that a new campaign would become necessary. And Cornwallis was always a man who liked to take the offensive. Um, so since peaceful pacification, you could say, was, was clearly not working, and certainly, and while there was a continental presence, and also a lot of Virginia military when militia were known to be marching southwards, um, and the Continentals under General Horatio Gage, uh, Gates, sorry, Gates, they uh, it was essential to take the war to the um, enemy by invading North Carolina. Uh, well, first of all, securing the frontier of South Carolina. Um, which he did, or hopefully thought he would achieve, at the Battle of Camden, which was a stunning victory. Uh, and then, clearly, you would have to move in to North Carolina. I think the attitude of the British, to some extent, was a little bit like that of the American in, in Vietnam, that uh, you couldn't secure... South, North, South Vietnam, unless you know you could um, cut off the the routes through Laos and 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 uh, Cambodia. Um, so you needed to advance there. This was, of course, was was Nixon's uh, strategy, perhaps that's Johnson. Um, and I think the British, in the same way, Cornwallis and, and Clinton too, that, that uh, well, certainly Cornwallis, that um, he needed to. Take the war to the enemy, and uh, of course, as he discovered, then it was not enough just to conquer North Carolina. You'd have to go on to Virginia, um, and increasingly, including that Virginia was where the, uh, the chips would fall. It was um, the conquest of Virginia um, would would be the key to winning the war in the South, and the Middle Colonies probably too. Is that the reason why he decided to go north rather than south after the Pyrrhic victory at Guilford Courthouse? Yeah, I think that's, yes, yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, although there were other reasons. I mean, there were practical reasons. He felt he couldn't, he, he went chasing green through the, back through the, uh, yeah, North Carolina, um, to the in, in interior of North Carolina, he was himself would be in grave danger of, uh, of uh, uh, well, not being able to subsist his army and, and not being able to confront the, the dangers that undoubtedly would, would envelop him. Um, the, op the other option was to, uh, he did ask for um, his commanding, his uh, senior officer in Charleston, um, Nesbitt Balfour to send transports. The other option was to go take transports back to um, Charleston and then march back up to uh, Camden and in support of uh, of um, uh, 
Lord Rawdon, who he'd left behind in, 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 as commander in, in South Carolina. Uh, but the other thing that tipped the balance here was that um, Cornwallis had earlier requested that troops should be sent, an expedition should be sent to uh, Virginia, to the Chesapeake, and, and particularly to uh, up, the, up to the James River, um, to cut off supplies to the Carolinas. Um, and Clinton, you know, had loyally, uh, had, had very readily um, sent troops, uh, first under General Leslie, um, and then further detachments, one under... Um, uh, Benedict Arnold, uh, and a further in reinforcement under Cornwallis's old, one of his old friends, John Jim Phillips, um, who was an engineer, uh, sorry, an artillery officer, um, with whom he'd uh, served in Germany. So the arrival of these, this growing force of, uh, in, in Virginia, which Clinton had also placed under Cornwallis's command, led him to think that, yeah, the forces were now there. If he brought his own forces from Wilmington, where he would retreat it after Guilford Courthouse, he would move forward with the, uh, he would move, join Fitz, and they would have a force of consequence with which to um, hopefully make a, uh, yeah, cut off supplies to the Carolinas and and perhaps, uh, yeah, establish a new um, order in uh, in Virginia. Um, so it was a combination of those things. The difficulties of getting back in time to help Rawdon and the attractions of um, moving northwards to um, join up with Phillips and uh, and conduct a, 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 a campaign, a decisive campaign as he saw it in Virginia. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. How responsible was Lord Cornwallis for the debacle at uh, Yorktown? Well, I think here he, uh, I mean, his I think, uh, say his strategy for moving into Virginia was obviously very, very questionable. But on the Yorktown, I think he can be um, absolved. Uh, I mean, he was uh, he was anticipating a war of, of movement of, um, yeah, chasing the rebels. Um, uh, but uh, one thing he'd overlooked was that Virginia was much closer to New York and uh, Charleston or the interior of North Carolina. And Clinton was now much in a, felt in a stronger position to be able to impose his own ideas on the, on the war in, uh, that Cornwallis was conducting in Virginia. Um, and Sir Henry decided that, uh, well, he had various plans. I mean, he himself was thinking of possibly going to Virginia at one point to conduct expeditions at the top end of the... Um, of the Chesapeake uh, area, the, Baltimore, the, the area around Baltimore, and, and into even into southern Pennsylvania, um, he'd been advised by uh, a Colonel William Rankin that there was a great deal of, of loyalist support in that region. So this was one reason why Clinton had been 
funneling, funneling more troops down into the Chesapeake. Um, well, that um, then, of course, uh, Clinton um, then learned about the, uh, the Weathersfield conference between Washington and the Rochambeau, Count Rochambeau, the uh, French troops who'd been arrived in the, in uh, Rhode Island in <clears throat> 1780, and they'd been sort of sitting there waiting for action. Um, the, clearly, Clinton saw there was a threat developing to um, to New York, so he abandoned the, the ideas initially of a, a, a further campaigning in Virginia. And but he then suggested to um, Cornwallis that he must uh, provide a base or find a base for his troops, and and then he expanded this. Um, to uh, enlarge the mission that um, not only a base for the troops, but also a base for the Navy, and particularly for the Navy's large battleships, the ships of the ships of battle, the line of battleships. Um, now, Clinton was took this decision, again, this is to some extent, when you look at Clinton, he has many worthy, you know, worthy aspects to his character. He was technically a very competent soldier, but he did carry on. I mean, he was a, a very critical of, Clint, of Cornwallis for coming up from abandoning South Carolina, the Carolinas, and coming to Virginia. Um, but he was also um, bitterly opposed to the Admiral uh, Marriott Arbuthnot, who commanded the British fleet in uh, in North America. And Arbuthnot, well, Clinton demanded that Arbuthnot would be recalled uh, and and a replacement, and the ministry did this, uh, and and Clinton was so grateful that he uh, the new uh, vice uh, rear admiral Gray Thomas Graves um, uh, was he was happy to uh, to uh, facilitate the uh, the navy because the navy itself didn't like New York as its principal base, um, the the uh, the sandbanks over the <clears throat> over to, uh, the, the, the the entrance to New York Harbor damaged the ships or the keels of the big ships. The New York was also likely to um, endanger freezing over and had there had been a very, very serious freezing of the of the uh, Hudson at the lower reach of the Hudson and the uh, yeah the area around the harbour, such to an extent that it was said that the weight of cannons could be borne by the ice, which made any ship of course trapped there very vulnerable to Attack a, a night attack, uh, yeah, by enemy enemy forces. So the navy wanted a, a, a an ice free port um, and an easily accessible um, place where they could at least anchor their ships, um, and particularly the West Indian fleet when it needed to come northwards or go anywhere to to elsewhere to escape the hurricane season. So all these things came down. Clinton was more than ready to uh, uh, gratify the navy. So he then sent the instructions to Cornwallis. His mission were therefore he was to now just concentrate on building this um, this new facility um, in <clears throat> at a place that Cornwallis uh, wasn't clear quite where uh, would be the most suitable. Um, in the uh, Cornwallis, Cornwallis was very much against this. So he, he appreciated a fixed base like that might be quite vulnerable to attack. Um, and uh, anyhow, uh, building building and constructing a large base at, at Yorktown was not his idea of the war. And he, in fact, requested Clinton permission to return to um, to the Carolinas and to take command there again, once again. Um, 
Clinton rejected that and insisted that Cornwallis uh, work on the uh, concentrate on the construction of the new naval facility and military facility. Why was Lord Cornwallis greeted so warmly upon his return to England? I think he just captured the um, the public imagination and that he was someone. I mean, it is in some ways a little bit surprising. Um, but sometimes, you know, in defeat, people defiantly uh, yeah, cling to their leaders. And Cornwallis had caught the eye of the public, his previous campaigns, um, the big victory at Camden and, uh, yeah, his chase after uh, someone who hadn't been just sitting in New York, as Clinton often appears to be doing, doing nothing, um, just cons- wait, uh, consuming large quantities of provisions and, and, and costing the country huge quantities. Cornwallis was someone who got out there and, uh, yeah, and tried to find the enemy and bring the war to a decisive, uh, fight the decisive battle against the uh, Washington or uh, Green or who at the, <clears throat> um, so uh, the other thing I think was also would filter back the troops he was um, he was known for his uh, yeah he was someone who attracted the troops he always suffered their um, their, their own de- deprivation he didn't uh, pamper himself when the decision was taken to um, advance into North Carolina to leave to, 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 to destroy all the um, also sorry, or unnecessary equipment. Um, uh, Cornwallis set the lead in burning his own, you know, trinkets or uh, his camp equipment um, that he uh, would normally carry, uh, which would be too uh, too um, heavy to carry with, with with a much slimmed down, almost without any wagon train. So he was someone who, uh, yeah, had a sort of Appeal to the soldiers, recognized their travails, didn't um, ostentatiously uh, seek his own comfort or ease. And I think all that probably would filter back that, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was the commander the people took to their hearts, rightly or wrongly. Why was he offered the position of Commander-in-Chief and Governor-General of Bengal? Yeah, um, well, there are a number of factors here. Uh, the, the first was that uh, the British were, um, government uh, were unhappy at the way um, yeah, affairs had developed in India. Um, I mean, partly it may have been envy. The um, huge wealth that people like Robert Clive had accumulated, the, uh, the so-called nabobs who um, uh, who had made these vast fortunes came back buying up large tracts of land um yeah purchasing yeah uh, buying their way into parliament into parliamentary seats etc uh that i think grated on a lot of people but i think there was also recognition that yeah the company well it was also the company despite the huge wealth the seeming wealth of india the company was um, losing money, yes, because of all the, the profits, all the way it was being creamed off. I think there was also a new sense that growing the age of enlightenment that governments um, shouldn't be just about exploitation and, uh, and holding office and privilege and everything else. There was a sense that government ought to offer the common people just a little bit more than uh, what they perhaps had been. Um, 
because even the despots of Europe, a point I make in the book, the despots of Europe like to describe themselves as um, as benevolent despotism. Um, there was okay, firm authoritative rule, but uh, it was uh, it had a strong uh, commitment to improving the lot of the common people. So I think that's all feeding through. Uh, that uh, now as to call the choice of Cornwallis, well. As I say, he came back almost a hero from his American venture. Um, he quickly was clearly respected. It was known that he'd taken a stand against army profiteering, which was uh, something that was coming to um, um, to profiteering generally. Um, so he had this reputation, and uh, the previous governor of Bengal, Governor General, the first Governor General, so-called of Bengal, Warren Hastings had had infinite problems in controlling his council. Um, so he uh, so thought that Cornwallis would have the necessary status um, as a as a as an aristocrat, uh, which uh, and authority as a soldier, because he recognised too the um, Indian Army would needed um, needed attention, needed reform. So I think all these things fed into uh, the appointment of Cornwallis. <clears throat> to the Indian job. Now, how successful was Lord Cornwallis in, in, in uh, implementing the reform program as mandated by the government in London? Well, I think I would have to say he was, um, he was fairly successful, well, pretty successful, would have been uh, considered pretty successful. Um, a huge amount of, yeah, of uh, waste and um, uh, corruption was, was cut out. Uh, the um, uh, Cornwallis, as, as he was mandated to do by the company, and indeed by an act of par- act of Parliament, um, yeah, the, the, instead of uh, company officials taking fees, etc., and all kinds of extortion and practices, and uh, he insisted or brought for the new new edict, which he rigorously enforced, was that people should be paid fixed salaries. Um, but he also, as he got into the job, so that was one thing, uh, yeah, people would not be taking kickbacks, bribes, or anything else. They had a fixed salary. And he followed this up with a very rigorous um, in, uh, assessment with he and his principal counselors into the functions of all the different departments and the officials in those departments to... Um, Try and uh, yeah to establish uh, yeah the principles uh, was the office did it have a useful function and uh, or could it be cut out did it need expanding but it it, it had to have a utilitarian a utility to the uh, for its existence and an appropriate re- uh, recompense for the holder of that office so this I think made the company yeah uh, very much more effective and efficient. Um, and uh, one of the things is, yes, Cornwallis, I mean, one of his great uh, principal tasks was to make the company once again profitable. Um, he succeeded in that, yes, by cutting out much of this waste and, uh, and corruption and where the way resources were being filched away and private trading by a company of employees, all that was cracked down and prevented. Um, he succeeded in in balancing the books, and yeah, the company returned to a modest profit, not uh, not uh, not a great profit, but he did bring it back into um, uh, yeah, 
in, into, now, as part of that remit, apart from cutting out waste and corruption, he was instructed to try and settle a new, make a new land settlement or permanent settlement with the um, landowning uh, classes of the Indian population to fix um, fair rates or, or for, for, their, for the rent or their uh, all the taxes levied on their properties. Um, and uh, yeah, he uh, he successfully well he managed to implement this is the so-called permanent would be a permanent settlement. The argument was, and Cornwallis was very enthusiastic about this, was that um, whereas under previous or Indian uh, governments um, the uh, levies le- uh, uh, extracted from the uh, from the landowners could be you know all from one year to another uh, they would be all different levels and different exactions. They never knew where they would stand. The argument about the permanent settlement was that this would give the landowning classes clarity uh, that uh, they knew what they would, they would in fact have a hereafter a fixed permanent um, assessment. They would then be able to work to that. They could anything over and above that would be their profit and theirs alone. The government wouldn't come after them for additional taxes. and and added to this was also the sense, the the feeling that um, uh, another advantage of a permanent settlement it would help the local population, yeah, establish and give them security in their their property and their, their yeah everything. But it would also help develop what um, Cornwallis see as a as a very desirable thing of a a more elevated or more um, enlightened aristocracy, rather like the English, you'd see it as the English aristocracy, um, an aristocracy that would be, um, or, or governing elite, that would uh, would be uh, uh, enlightened self-interest, would be driven by those sort of considerations that self-improvement of their lands, better treatment of their, um, of the of the peasants, the riots, riot, riot, the, 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 the Indian, yeah, um, Agricultural laborers or um, peasant class, they would also benefit from this. And he was looking at it in a way to the English aristocracy, people like his um, uncle, great uncle, um, Lord Townshend, known as Turnip Townshend, who was carried out in agricultural reforms in in Britain that um, yeah stimulated production and increased the wealth of the agriculture, the agrarian classes, and 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 generally the wealth of the of the country. Um, the permanent settlement, however, well, it didn't lead to an enlightened, as historians have all constantly pointed out, it didn't lead to an enlightened um, bureau, uh, aristocracy. Um, and sadly, yes, it didn't uh, lead to the kind of improvements that he anticipated. He and the company and the and the ministry anticipated it didn't bring the improvements to agriculture that uh, it was anticipated that it would do. Um, so that was um, uh, less of an achievement, I think. The third part of his uh, initial instructions was to was to attend to complaints um, from the, um, the the population about the uh, previous exploitation or expropriation of their lands by the company by company officials. Um, and Cornwallis used that directive to uh, look into the whole of the uh, or the civil uh, the law civil laws of um, of uh, the, by which the, uh, yeah, the company governed India, um, establishing new courts rather on the British model of um, uh, 
yeah, of, of, of um, sort of magistrates' courts and then superior courts for dealing with uh, with appeals. Um, I think that was a considerable, um, yeah, was a considerable, considerable improvement. Why was Lord Cornwallis named um, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland? Well, he'd come back to um, to England. Um, he was appointed into the cabinet and uh, played a very leading, yeah, leading role. Uh, well, as a minister, uh, initially he was uh, there to advise, uh, partly to advise the um, the cabinet on military matters. Um, also, uh, as Master General of the Ordnance, which was his formal position. I mean, effectively, he was Minister of War Production. Um, so, uh, but then, the of course, Ireland had um, not a very satisfactory position there. The uh, uh, what you had was uh, um, uh, an elite, the uh, sort of Anglo-Irish um, elite. Which were only arrested. Their support really was no more than about 10% of the population, excluding the 75% of the Catholic population and the 15% of the population who were um, Presbyterians uh, in in their religious practices. Um, and the uh, onset of the French Revolution created really quite a cocktail of um, of uh, yeah, uh, un- uh, unrest. Um, uh, I mean, the, uh, the 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 landlord class. I mean, these were quite opposite again from Cornwallis's view about the British aristocracy being itself an enlightenment. Um, the uh, the landlord owning classes in Ireland, yeah, exacted high you know rates, um, um, levy or rents on their on the tenantry. Um, and the church, the Anglican Church, also the elites supported the elite, of which the elite were members. They uh, elevated, of course, church ties. So it's a very, very uh, mixture. And uh, and then, of course, the appeal begin to be uh, of the French Revolution, uh, offering a way to more, at least uh, among the intelligentsia, particularly Presbyterians, that um, maybe, yeah, revolution. Republican ideas begin to gain ground, um, and and as I say, the mass of the peasantry, uh, the exaction of the ties and high rents, um, which bedeviled Ireland, uh, create a very very volatile situation. So, a rebellion breaks out in 1798, um, led by uh, Wolfe Tone and, and other uh, leading Republicans. Um, uh, with the idea, yes, of expelling the British and establishing a, a French-style republic, um, and in this situation, the uh, the current Lord Lieutenant, the Lord Camden, uh, feels completely inadequate, and he had for some time been pleading for Cornwallis to be sent over to sort the situation out, um, and by with the outbreak of the serious rebellion in late May. 1788, 1798, uh, 1798 rebellion. Uh, Pitt decides, yes, Cornwallis is the man to uh, rescue the situation, but not simply to put the pacify the country. The British um, elite, uh, political classes for a long time had decided, yes, Ireland was rotten to the core. The existing um, Anglo-Irish elite were completely um, incapable of rescuing the situation. So Cornwallis has a double mission. Yes, pacify the country, but also enact 
help the, with the enactment of an act of union, bringing legislative union to the two kingdoms. So Ireland would become part of Great Britain. Now, did Lord Cornwallis believe in Catholic em emancipation as a remedy for the discontent of Ireland, or I should say discontent of Ireland's Catholics? Uh, yes, he did. Um, this is one of the things that surprised me, that just how um, insistent he was right from the start that uh, Catholic, um, Catholic emancipation was really a sine qua non for a successful pacification of the country and, and certainly for a successful act of union. Um, I don't, this is one of the areas where his lack of personal papers and personal correspondence or keeping of a diary, you know, I, one feels quite sadly that, uh, yeah, the, this prevented me from getting absolutely to the bottom of why he was so vociferously pro Catholic or Catholic emancipation. Um, he was in his religious views, of course, he was a member of the Church of England, um, uh, but he was very much the uh, sort of latitudinarian style. Um, I mean, the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, uh, of course, can cater for uh, just about every kind of um, uh, different uh, uh, religious uh, doctrine, uh, ideology uh, possible. Um, and he very much yeah, thought religion was, in the end, uh, was a matter for the individual, uh, providing they <laughs> maintained the observe the king's peace, uh, their religion, I suppose. So he is really quite uh, very much liberal in terms of yeah of uh, of the church on on that, and I think that makes him much more than uh, uh, sympathetic or ready to accommodate the Catholics. I do think also he recognition, he never said this, I haven't seen this in writing, but his experience from America, you couldn't win a war, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't regain a country to its loyalty you know, if, if the mass of the population uh, had been alienated and, uh, yeah, didn't uh, if you didn't uh, yeah try to meet their 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 concerns, um, you couldn't you couldn't uh, govern without <clears throat> at least the passive consent of the majority of the population, and clearly that wasn't the case in Ireland. So Catholic emancipation was a sine qua non was essential, and he pursues that all the way through. I mean, some of the cabinet a pit waivers and says yes and then no. I mean, there's a very strong um, support for the in, within Pitt's cabinet for the Anglo-Irish elite who are absolutely, totally opposed to Catholic emancipation. Um, and, uh, and so that um, <clears throat> winning over the cabinet was very difficult, but it did seem towards the, uh, the start of 1801 and the Act of Union has been passed that Catholic emancipation would follow and then to Cormos's bitter regret, it didn't. And he made the several times made the prediction that if emancipation wasn't granted, then inevitably, in due course, at some point, it would be taken or demanded or and, and wrested from Britain. It would, Britain would have to concede emancipation, and there would be this kind of ratchet effect that would lead to further demands. And of course, this is precisely what the history of the 19th century Ireland shows, that uh, demands a reawakening <clears throat> a sense of um, an Irish, uh, Catholic Irish and, and national identity, um, increasingly demands, yeah, to undo the Act of Union 
So, uh, yeah, so I think he here was extremely foresighted in what, if they didn't act, if they didn't grant it then uh, as, a, as a great, as, as, a, as a gift, uh, they will be forced from them later in due course. Why did the Addington cabinet name Lord Cornwallis as its chief negotiator for the French, with the French, and how good a negotiator was he? Uh, yeah, the reasons for his appointment. Um, I suppose he personally had quite good relations with the, uh, well, at least with Addington. Um, the uh, well, I suppose he was uh, his prestige was running fairly high, and the, uh, uh, the uh, his, his achievements in, as it was seen in India, um, in uh, restoring or uh, strengthening the British Empire. Um, and his success, uh, seemingly, in, of course, in Ireland again, in uh, yeah, bringing Ireland into the British, uh, into the Britain as part of Britain, as uh, yeah, this part of the centre of the imperial, uh, of a, a new set, beginning of the, perhaps a new set, a little bit of a, 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 an imperial mission. I think all these things, yeah, made him uh, preeminently, uh, uh, well, as uh, someone who could hopefully would stand up to Napoleon, because the negotiations obviously would be uh, at some point, anyhow, would be. Uh, would be with Napoleon, <clears throat> um, and it was hoped that Cornwallis's own reputation as a Governor General of Bengal of India, as people increasingly are referring to, um, yeah, he was a sort of proconsular figure. Um, he spoke reasonably good French, um, so uh, he'd be able to conduct the negotiations. Uh, there, having said that, of course, Cornwallis's mission was simply to um, the the uh, preliminaries tr- uh, treaty. Um, the articles of peace had been had been already drafted, had been agreed in London, and it really was only it seemed to be one or two small points that Cornwallis would have to um, cross the I's and dot the T uh, on the on the final treaty. Um, the, all the hard work had been done by the uh, by the diplomats. Um, so that's the reason I think for his uh, yeah. For his uh, yeah, he would be a formality, um, and, and, and the signing would go ahead. Um, <clears throat> uh, of course, didn't quite work out like that because there were some things that happened that it, the eyes hadn't been dotted or the T's crossed, um, particularly on the issue of Malta, um, and also the. Uh, uh, the, perhaps the British were naive in thinking that on their side the things would go through smoothly. In fact, it's, I think it's well documented now that the, the French, um, uh, Napoleon, yeah, uh, <clears throat> didn't necessarily see the preliminaries as anything other than a sort of, uh, they were ready to undo or reinterpret or, 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 or change their stance on a number of issues. Also, including the um, there were costs of uh, of payment for the uh, supporting the uh, ministers, uh, sorry prisoners, um, which the uh, the British have been largely um, paying for. Um, there were issues like that in the end. The, the British way, the, the, but the overall the the, so the discussions, in fact, particularly over Malta, um, go backwards and forwards and uh, uh, appear to be going nowhere. <clears throat> As I say, I think the the main reason was because the French were still trying to um, wrest some extra advantage uh, before they put their, did their, their final signature. Now, Cornwallis himself, um, yeah, he was sometimes baffled by these manoeuvres. He did have well, one or two experienced diplomats with him to advise him on the, 
all, all matters relating uh, uh, um, uh, Francis Mary, who uh, was a very able diplomat. Um, not a very merry person in his personality, as Wallace noted at one point, but a very efficient and effective, and he paid great tribute to Mary's um, yeah, support at critical moments. Um, in the end, um, Cornwallis, uh, the French realized they weren't making any advances or undoing any of the articles, and eventually um, they uh, recognized, um, or more or less um, signed what had been agreed in London in the preliminary articles. There were very, very few, only very minor changes. So, although Cornwallis, many people criticized because the British press were just not impressed by the uh, by the by Cornwallis. Well, they assumed that Britain would gain a lot more. It appeared to Britain appeared to have surrendered much more than the French had. That um, particularly capture of three or four of the French West Indian islands, they were returned to the French, and uh, Britain seemed to get very, very little out of that. But that wasn't Cornwallis's fault. That was had been agreed by the British ministry. You were very... Uh, Abington minister wanted peace. They wanted to restore the British finances, uh, the, the borrowing the debt problems and whatnot. Um, they wanted peace, um, and they had agreed to the preliminaries, and that's pretty much what Cornwallis delivered. But certainly there was a lot of criticism, and people thought that Britain should have had a lot, lot more, and yeah, a lot of them blamed Cornwallis that he wasn't up to the job. How do we evaluate Lord Cornwallis today? Still the heroic proconsul of empire? Yeah, well, it's a difficult, um, it's a difficult one of, uh, in, in that, um, I mean, I think he's unfairly been uh, rather written out of the uh, various parts of the, at least um, in, in, in British history, uh, his um, achievements in India, however questionable. And of course, um, there are a lot of questions to be uh, to be raised about Cornwallis's uh, in India, but just before I could deal with that, a few comments on that. Um, elsewhere, yeah, I think in Ireland, uh, his uh, his achievements have been um, have been uh, really uh, downplayed. Um, the achievement of the Act of Union. Um, it's like if there is still credit going there, it's been it's given to Castlereagh. Um, who Cornwallis acknowledged was a very, very effective colleague, uh, and to William Pitt. Um, so I think he's been somewhat written out of that. Of course, in dealing with the empire with India, um, there are all these questions about, yeah, and now we're saying, oh, well, this is, um, empire is a very dirty, pejorative term, and uh, anyone involved in imperialistic adventures, uh, adventures or must be uh, is, is to be um, cannot be a, a, a good person. Um, so I think the uh, but point I would make about Cornwallis, yes, okay, maybe the British Empire on the round was uh, yeah, well, it was a thing of its time, and uh, clearly um, it had to come to an end, and did come to an end, rightly so. Uh, and there were many periods uh, in its history when uh, it. Uh, it suffered, yeah. Uh, it was uh, very much a, 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 a system that, uh, yeah, was only largely advantage, of course, of the governing class, the imperial power, and was exploitative as far as the mass of the Indian population were concerned. But so far as Cornwallis, I mean, I think he did have, he, it was a remarkable point I would make, is he was a remarkable humanitarian. Um, his respect for other people, other religions, um, 
his dislike, for instance, he was quite progressive on it, and he disliked slavery. He didn't campaign against slavery, but he did consider at one point that slavery in India ought to be tackled at some point, although, because it was such a huge, uh, well, undertaking was beyond his remit and beyond his power. But he is a, he is a very rather progressive and very, very humanitarian. His concern for his common soldiers. Um, I think all these things, yeah, made him, uh, I mean, and he had a vision that the empire would be, uh, could be a, a beneficial, a humanitarian one in which uh, all the different pe- sections of the population had their place, but it was a place in which, for instance, Indians, their properties were were, were, were protected and their um, their lives uh, were, were protected by known laws, because one of the things I didn't get, get mentioned was his so-called Cornwallis Code, where he decided uh, to bring up a whole list of um, codes of dealing with all aspects of government and the laws, explaining and had these printed, and he believed in transparency, uh, the importance of having these things, um, yeah, so that the ordinary Indians or the, yeah, they could they could understand their place in society. So I think he had the notion that it was a complementary and could be a. Uh, uh, yeah, a uh, uh, benefit to the governing and the governed. Um, I mean, of course, you could say it's a little bit rather naive, and it's a bit like uh, what uh, defenders of slavery in America said. You know, there was a, a place for the slaves; they were not capable of being um, uh, looking after themselves. But uh, the slave system gave them security. Of course, as we know, this was um, this was delusional thinking. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Well, thank you very much. A pleasure to be able to address, address your audience. Thank you.